right, welcome back to another episode of Vernacular Podcast. This is take two of our read, watch, listen episode. <laughs> I'm joined by the lady chuckling across from me, Sally, and also by Elena, who was with us for our last episode, all about Flannery O'Connor, the one that was supposed to be about read, watch, listen. And then a week ago, we recorded a great read, watch, listen episode. And then in the editing process, that dumb editor who I... I, I don't know if he should get his paycheck this Who week. I contract out to do our editing for us. Yeah. Who's very well compensated for his efforts. <laughs> it's me. I destroyed the file by accident. I'm sorry, people. So yeah, when I was... Uh, actually, it wasn't even when I was editing that. No, really, it's a gift to the listeners because this is going to be a better take than the last one. I hope so. Yes. Yeah, please explain the office uh, analogy, Sally. Oh, yeah. There's uh, this scene in, I don't know what episode or what season, but Pam, uh, she kind of screens Michael's responses or his his answering of the phone. And she'll say, Michael, there's a call for you. And then he'll answer the phone in some weird way. Jam the man. Yeah, something be like, nope, that's not professional, <laughs> but she'll still be on the line. And then the second go around, he usually does a better job and it's more professional. So not that we were unprofessional the last time, but this is just going to be a better take than yeah. last week. And it was because uh, Josh and I had recorded a marathon breaking pot session. We're trying to get ahead of schedule because he and Maureen are expecting baby number two at any at any time. Any minute. Any minute. Uh, and so we're, we're trying to like, you know, create a, uh, a front load of episodes that we can still keep to our weekly release schedule for Breaking Pod. So we had been released, we had been recording just boom, boom, boom. And then I had a file corruption on the mixer, which was very bad and has never happened before. And then in an effort to fix all that stuff, I accidentally deleted what was on the We were the casualty. Mixer, yeah. But we're so, back. But we're back. And without further ado, we're going to talk about what we read recently. That's right. Read, and by watch, recently, listen. I mean since like February. <laughs> yes. So, Sally, should we do read, watch, or listen first? Yes. You asked me this last time, and I think we should do read first because that is first in our... <laughs> okay. So reading. Elena, since you're our guest, guests go first. Let's start with you. It's a rule. Well, I, I don't make the rules here. It's How just, polite it's of you. Rule. All right, Elena, what are your, what are the things you've been reading this spring? Because of course we do this quarterly. So this is the spring read watch lesson. They don't have to be spring related, but just what have you been reading this spring? spring. What do you want to read? Perhaps maybe there's something that's coming out that you really want to get after really and haven't springy. been able to yet. Yeah. Something really springy. <laughs> Well, um, the cover of the Flannery O'Connor book that we talked about last time is really springy, as are the six other Flannery O'Connor books that I have purchased in the last month after getting really excited about that. So, um, are I you did a thrift finish... books user like we are? Do you buy through Alas, thrift books? No, oh, okay. I buy I buy new for the most part. But um, yeah, so I picked up Wise Blood and Mystery and Manners, which was uh, a collection of essays by Flannery. Um, Another book that actually has a very beautiful springy cover is Uncommon Ground by Timothy Keller and John Inazu. Um, so it's kind of a kind of a, a Ooh, that's nice Christian take on living on politics uh, when you don't agree with either party on everything. Um, so, but those are new. The book that I'm actually reading now is Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace, which is a ridiculously long book. Yeah, I was going to say, um, I hear he's good at writing concisely. Just <laughs> real, oh a real pithy style. <laughs> you know, I mean, there are some parts of it that have just been overwhelmingly difficult to get through. Um, I mean, like he's at one point, so he's talking about uh, 
this tennis player and his uh, delight in in using marijuana and how he goes to this particular pump room in uh, on the campus where he goes to school. And it's just, it's multiple pages describing this pump room where he says, the pump room is essentially like a pulmonary organ or the epicenter of a massive six-vectored wind tunnel. And when activated, roars like a banshee that slammed its head in, hand in a door, though the PR is in full legit operation only when the lung is up, usually November to March. And it's just like continuing on about like that for a couple of pages. So it took me a while to really realize why this guy is, is very worth reading. But um, yeah, it's a couple of unusual uh, storylines that he's pulling together, but I'm, I'm enjoying it. It's good. Um, it's all fiction, right? It is. Yeah, it's fiction. Um, he has uh, David Foster Wallace has some nonfiction essays, but, but this is, uh, yeah, it's fiction, but there are a couple different storylines that are running parallel with each other. I read about, um, a young woman who was in a psych ward for attempted suicide and she's talking about her, uh, her marijuana addiction. And then there's this other young man who is a tennis player and he goes to a school like uniquely for tennis players. And then there's this other storyline of, uh, uh, it was, uh, a Saudi or uh, an att- attache to a Saudi prince who unexpectedly died after watching a strange cassette tape. So that's kind of where, where it's at at this point. And there are these uh, unique characters, um, an undercover uh, uh, officer or like intelligence officer, Hugh Steeply, who is in fact uh, undercover as a woman. Um, so, <laughs> so that's interesting. And then there's this, uh, uh, a radical with, um, uh, a, a, you know, who's like the, his group is the source of this cassette tape and, uh, he's from Quebec. So it's just wow. like yeah. a Canadian radical, like whoever thought of that, you know? So, <laughs> so do Anyways. any of these lines, will they eventually converge or? Uh, well, I, I hope so. I think it uh, <laughs> mostly converges around the, uh, the cassette tape. Um, but yeah, I'd say so. One of the one of the the passages that really stood out to me actually was when this um, this intelligence officer Hugh Steeply is talking with this uh, French Canadian um, agent for this uh, you know resist or this um, uh, radical group, and there, this uh, uh, French Canadian guy Marat is talking about how important it is to have something that you that you love more than yourself um, and the importance of living for something more than just yourself. And I think the phrase, uh, the phrase probably that started me reading the book, I think I heard Tim Keller use this in the sermon, but he talks about love that bends back on back in on the self. He says it makes you narrow, maybe crazy. Choose with care, love of your nation, your country and people. It enlarges the heart, something bigger than the self. So he's going back and forth with this uh, intelligence agent and talking about how important it is to teach people, um, what to love. He talks about how the word fanatic comes from a, a Latin word that means worshiper at the temple. So he says, uh, but this, uh, this intelligence offer pushes back and he says, but you assume it's always a choice, conscious decision. This isn't just a little naive Remy. You sit down with your accountant's ledger and soberly decide what to love always. What if sometimes there is no choice about what to love? What if the temple comes to Muhammad? 
What if you just love without deciding? You just do. You see her, and in that instant, you are lost to sober account-keeping and cannot choose but to love. Marath Sniff held the stain. Then, in such a case, your temple is self and sentiment. Then, in such an instance, you are a fanatic of desire, a slave to your individual subjective narrow self-sentiment, a citizen of nothing. You become a citizen of nothing. You are by yourself and alone, kneeling to yourself. In such a case as this, you become the slave who believes he is free, the most pathetic of bondage, not tragic, no songs. You believe you would die twice for another, but in truth, you would die only for yourself alone. It's sentiment. So, wow. yeah, so there's a little bit of depth in here after uh, the, the strange weaving together of different narratives, but maybe I'll have more to report at the end of the year if I ever get the get through the thousand plus pages. <laughs> yeah, of you said book. it's 1300 pages. No, it's like uh, 1100, you oh, know, 1113, 11, okay. <laughs> you know, same difference. Wow. Yeah, seriously. I mean, once you get above a thousand, it's, it's in a, a category. Uh, it, it's in rare air for books. That's yeah, long. for sure. Was um, was Kristen Laverne's auto that you read, Sally? Was that a thousand pager? So if you add up the three books, yeah, I, mean, I, I think th- it I gets think to that because I think each of them was each of them was at least over 300. So, so then, so roughly, roughly a thousand, thousand. maybe one of them was longer than maybe 400, but so yeah, I mean, that's an 1100 territory. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I have not, is that your book, Sally? The, the one that you're going to talk about, Kristen Levin's daughter? No, she's talked about that before. Yeah. I read it last Lent, actually. It's a three part, uh, story, like epic story of this woman's life, Kristen, and then Lavern's daughter is one word because it's set in 14th century Norway and it's written by um, Sigurd Unset, who Late is- Late Dominican, third order Dominican, Sigurd Unset. Yes, she is also- Go Dominicans. The author of a biography of St. Catherine of Siena. So I guess if we're moving on, I can say that- Let's do it. I'm yeah. reading that now. I'm almost done with it. And it's definitely whet my appetite for more Sigurd Unset because as amazing as St. Catherine of Siena is, Sigurd Unset is just a great writer. And so she does a great job um, weaving in the kind of environmental aspects of what's going on in a person's life, but then also the, the deeper aspects of their life without using the first person, which is pretty incredible. And St. Catherine of Siena is incredible woman and just reading about her life story has been very inspiring she actually talks a lot about self-love that's kind of one of the themes of her writing as well um saying that you know the the best thing you can do is get rid of your self-love so that kind of relates to what you were saying elena but that is certainly uh controversial though in this cultural climate yeah that's true (laughs) it is yeah i mean i think what we hear all the time is like no you have to what you have to do is love yourself more the problem is not a uh is not a an, an excess of love of self but a deficit of love of, love of self yeah that's true that's true it, i think though you know just to to be fair to people who talk about it now i think what's necessary is description or, or explanation of what is meant by the uh by you know the sigurd inset denial of self-love or St. Catherine of Siena. Um, I'm sorry, yeah. Saint, yeah. Well, I mean, what she, you know, what she conveys right. through the work of St. Catherine of Siena. And it's not about... Um, it's not it, about hating yourself. Though. Yeah, it's not about hating yourself. I mean, it's, I think it's about hating like those things about this mortal coil, including our humanity that separate us from God. Yeah. Um, but actually using those things that are bearing God's image to bring us closer to him and properly glorifying him for giving us those things. Yeah, I think it's about ordering our loves. Right. 
And if we love ourselves in God and love God ultimately more than ourselves, then then we'll have a properly ordered loves. Yeah, I think, you know, to be fair to um to be fair to modernists who talk about self-love, I don't think they're always, I mean certainly in some cases they are, but I think I don't think they're always talking about um, you know, uh loving the part of you that St. Catherine of Siena says we should not love, right? I think in many respects, they're talking about uh, recognizing the intrinsic value and inherent dignity of yourself as a person. And that's a good and fundamentally um, worthwhile thing to do and totally compatible with what St. Catherine would say. Um, well, I mean, and I've, uh, I've been reading uh, another one, um, a book about the crucifixion, and I just got to a section where she's talking about uh, the wrath of God and how to hate something is the opposite of, uh, of loving something that if you love something, you have to, you kind of have to, by necessity, hate what causes the destruction of the thing you love. Right. Um, so if we love something, uh, if we love the, the humanity that God has put in us, then when there are things that wage war against the image of God in us, then we ought to hate those things. So there's like there's a, a piece of that that's missing from the modern narrative of self-love. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and to go back to the narrative of saints and to use a different saint, but another favorite of ours, St. Therese. St. Therese, the little flower, as she's often called, is called the little flower because she recognized her own littleness. So in that sense, she hated herself. It wasn't about puffing herself up. It wasn't about ambition. It wasn't about self-love in that sense. But the reason why she is, uh, why there's such a strong devotion to her and why she's held up as one of only four women doctors of the church, despite dying at the age of 24, the whole reason is that she had such an appreciation for how much God loved her. And that love was not born from anything that she did. It was completely unmerited. Uh, but in fact, you know, the, the, the things that separated her from God were the things that she wanted expunged from her life. And so that wasn't a form of self-hatred, although maybe to the modern mind, some of it might look like that because you reject some of the sort of natural vices with which you're born. Um, but it's, it's a very different thing from, from what we would call hatred of self today or what we normally think of it as hatred of self. We're, like you said, Elena, rejecting those things that prevent us from the thing that we love the most or that loves us the most. Yeah, well said. You could rival Sacred Unsaid in her. <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> well, I I think I want to continue on and read more Sacred Unsaid. Um, I know she has some quote unquote more modern novels that were written in her lifetime, which, set in her lifetime, which is the 1920s. I was like, I think they're all written in her I lifetime. Know. <laughs> <laughs> but then uh, she also has more that are set in, I think, 14th century Scandinavia. Um, she was Swedish, right? She was Scandinavian, I think. Or Norwegian. Okay. I'm pretty sure Norwegian. Okay. Because I think it. everything's written in Norwegian. Okay. Um, but yes, but she was Scandinavian, correct. And, but then on a lighter note, I, in the past few months read, um, uh, oh, Crazy Rich Asians. I was like, what is the, what is the movie and the book? <laughs> Which was really fun. It was really fun. Can't remember the title. It's something about people who are from Asia. They have a lot of money. <laughs> it was a very fun, it was just a fun read. I like pairing my deeper reads with, with. Uh, fun reads. So. Now, Sally, we watched the sh we watched the movie. I think in October. Does that right. sound right? Yeah. Um, did us having watched the movie six months before you read the book 
spoil your enjoyment of the book at all. No, not I, actually, because I had picked up the book from the library way back when and was just kind of like, what is this? I don't understand. These people seem just really full of themselves. And I didn't really get the main storyline yeah. or the the people who actually care about more than money. Um, and so I think watching the movie actually made me more interested in reading the book. I thought it was a good movie, too. I mean, it I, was. It I was probably fun. won't read the book. Uh, sure. It doesn't seem like my general genre of fiction but i'm sure it'd be enjoyable i just have already seen the movie so i've probably gotten what i would get out of the book yeah well i also um read a mystery from a new author that i'd never read before jane harper who's known as australia's ton of french who is a favorite of mine that i've mentioned before she wrote the dublin mystery crime fiction series and is a an irish mystery writer but um the drive was good it was a little more the topic was more gruesome than i like usually, but I decided to plow ahead just to see how the mystery unraveled. But um, it was kind of one of those things that wasn't best before bed. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I would caution sensitive readers. Um, That's fair. I think I might try another one by her, but not if they all have the same, the same type of crime. Okay. Uh, do they have all the same cast? Is it like the recurring? I don't know. Okay. I'm not sure. Yeah. That that I have to find that out too. I don't think she has quite the same series that Tana French does. I feel bad for artists and creators who are from smaller countries or countries in the Southern Hemisphere. What'd you say this author's name is? Uh, Jane Harper. Jane Harper. So Jane Harper is called the Tana French of Australia or yeah. Australia's Tana French. But like Tana French wouldn't be called. Is she American Tana French? I don't know. Uh, I think she's Irish. Okay. Everything I mean, she wrote is set in Dublin. So maybe this is, I guess maybe I'm, maybe this doesn't hold water then. But like, I, I think you'd never or very rarely would be, you be like in the big, more well-known country and be the so-and-so of your oh, country. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah. yeah. I think Tana French is just has such a following, has been writing for so many years that um, that a lot of people compare mystery writing to her works. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Like there are always these these names that dominate in their genre. Speaking of which, Robert Galbraith. Oh, yeah. A.K.A. J.K. Rowling. She's coming out with her next book in September. I think you could pre-order it. I saw it pre-orderable on Target. A little early for a spring read, though, unfortunately. So Very true. Very true. So maybe maybe we'll be talking about that in fall. Is this the third or fourth Robert Gilbraith book? The fourth. Yes. Okay. So I have two. Oh, yeah. We had this conversation. The fifth. Yeah. Oh, my. I know. Wow. I have a few to catch up on. Cuckoo's Calling, Silkworm, Career of Evil. Yes. And then um, Lethal White. Lethal White. The most recent one. Yep. Yeah. And I don't know what the next one is called, but I'm excited. Moving to seven overall, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's or nine. Nine. Oh, wow. I think it's seven or nine. Ooh. Yeah. Impressive. Yeah. Is that all you have on your read list? Um, I mean, I have some that I want to start. I talked about Strangers and Sojourners last time, and that was a fantastic novel by Michael D. O'Brien. And I ordered sophia house from the library right before covid and everything and i got it <laughs> so i still have that um on my dresser uh so i'm excited to start that one eventually. i really wish we had known the lockdown was coming just a day earlier because the the library shut down immediately and if we if we if we had you know had some advance notice we just stopped we would have run to the library and and hit the 100 book quota i know yeah. And just had a f- had free, and I wouldn't have returned the books that I that, that were late, but I hadn't finished yet. Well, of course not. Oh, yeah, like that one by Sarah. Yes, yes. Okay, well, those are great suggestions. Yeah, I too am excited about the Robert Galbraith one. Uh, for the sake of time, I will only share two of my books. I have, you know, some yeah, sorry, some theology <laughs> books I'm reading, including one that Elena gave me. 
Uh, so thank you for that, Elena. But I'm actually going to mention another book that Elena gave me that I've been reading. Oh, yeah. And this is by Michael Lewis of Moneyball fame. But uh, Elena, you oh, fun. You may have forgotten you got this for me. It was it was for Christmas. Oh, no, I didn't. Okay. Yeah. Well, I really enjoy it. I am about a third, a little more than a third of the way through. And it's fascinating. So for those who haven't heard of Michael Lewis, first of all, he is a uh, best-selling author of Moneyball. I think it's probably his best-known work. But he's also written The Big Short, which has turned into a movie with uh, Steve Carell. Um, the Blind Side, which was obviously turned into a, an also very high-profile movie with Sandra Bullock. Wow, so maybe and, this will be a movie. And Liar's Poker. I actually think it is a movie. Oh, okay, uh, cool. Or at least it's in development, I think. You should watch it when I'll you're to, done. I'll have to double-check. But yeah, so uh, on the back of this book, Malcolm Gladwell of you know great hits like David and Goliath, Blank, etc., writes, I read Michael Lewis for the same reason I watch Tiger Woods. I'll never play like that, but it's good to be reminded every now and again what genius looks like. Wow. It's quite that an endorsement. That is high praise. And, uh, and it's, well, it's really good. And one of the things that I liked about that, that story, the Flash Boys story, um, is that... Well, can you summarize uh, the story real quick, Elena, for listeners who aren't familiar with it? Sure. So Flash Boys, uh, it started... Um, so one of the one of the challenges about um, high speed about trading on Wall Street, high frequency trading in Wall Street, is that um, since everything is digital these days, a great deal depends on how quickly your your internet, your fiber works in order to get your purchase or your your bid, your order through. Um, and it means that people who are honestly physically close uh, to uh, the trading floor because it, I mean, it's crazy to think that there is a, a speed or delay when something moves digitally, but there is um, that uh, it creates uh, advantages and disadvantages. So um, the, the guys in the story and um, remind me of their name, Zach um, uh, Bradley Katsuyama, I think. Yeah. So Brad um, Katsuyama is the head at the, uh, the um, Canadian the investors exchange, the Canadian bank oh. that does this. He eventually founds investors exchange to combat this in part. But when he kind of uncovers the whole HFT scam, he's at RBC, the Royal bank of Canada. Okay. So it means that, um, that, uh, yeah, certain people have, uh, advantages over others and they're exploiting these as well. Um, so there's, um, there's, uh, injustice essentially. <laughs> I mean, wow. Amazing injustice in wall street trading. But, um, but yeah, so this guy, uh, Brad Katsuyama is actually, I believe a Christian. Um, and he was motivated out of a sense of, uh, of creating a, a more fair playing field. Um, and, uh, so I was just kind of, uh, intrigued by, by the story and that something that feels as cutthroat as, uh, wall street trading that, you know, that someone approached it with such a mind of, um, of ethics and justice and, um, and wanting to, to create a, a, a fair opportunity for, for people to engage in, in this trading, uh, atmosphere. So you were like, yeah, I'll I, get this for Zach. Cause maybe he could learn something about <laughs> true, well, true story. I, this is a true story. Oh, definitely a true story. Okay, yeah. yeah. He writes I only guess, true stories, I, I guess. Uh, I, I don't know about exclusively, but everything I know everything of you is, mentioned was, is true. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, the thing that I, that made me think of you, Zach, is really just, uh, the sense of competition in it. I think that you'd appreciate that. Oh, you think I'm a competitive person? <laughs> what? Uh, yeah, well, you did a really good job explaining that, Elena. Um, I will say that, obviously, this stuff, I mean, the, these strategies that high-frequency traders employ are very complicated. 
um, so complicated, in fact, that at the time that Brad Katsuyama is trying to investigate them, he can't get to the bottom of it. And no one really knows what's happening. So you have these traders who are trying to place uh, place trades, you know, to buy 100,000 shares of a stock, right? And they see that that stock is being sold for $31.05 a share uh, at the exchange that they're trying to buy from. They press the buy order and the, the, you know, the price wall or the demand for that stock basically evaporates and the deal's gone, right? So the price of the stock goes up and they lose the money on the margins that they thought they were not going to lose. And so um, it's, it's really complicated, but you explained it well. Elena, basically these high frequency traders figure out a way to capitalize on that, to, to anticipate what people are trying to buy and beat them to it. Wow. I mean, it's as simple as that. Wow. But no one knew it. It was, it was made possible by legislation that was passed in the basically just prior to and in the beginning of the dot-com era and was never updated to reflect some of these realities. So Katsuyama figured it out, figures it out and figures out how to go after these. And then eventually there's some federal prosecutions because the SEC gets involved. And, wow. um, you know, this stuff is, is uh, if, not, if not illegal, I mean, certainly gravely immoral just with how they're going about it. Um, but it's really good. And Michael Lewis is a master storyteller. So I'm enjoying that. The only other thing I'll mention is uh, Tom Clancy's Hunt for Red October, oh, which yeah. I'm also reading and really enjoying. I've never read a Tom Clancy work before. He's obviously one of the greats, uh, obviously passed away since then, but his Jack Ryan series, I've seen the movies with Harrison Ford and Chris Pine, and I have seen the show with uh, John Krasinski that was terrible, but the book's been very good, and I'm, I'm very happy about that. And this is good. You found a new author. Yeah, exactly. I think that's Always awesome. That's I mean, exciting. Michael Connelly, Lee Child, I've kind of been through those, and now I need someone else for my guilty pleasure fiction reading, so... But we are almost done here, time-wise, and we have not gotten to listening and watching. So let's pivot to watching in the read, watch, listen order. Uh, and we'll just go back down the line. So I'll start off, but I think... I think we can jointly Yeah, okay, we'll go jointly because we've yeah. watched the same things for the most part. Um, so, and I have no sports to watch right now, so, which is super sad. Except the Korean baseball, by the way, is on. So I, heard fan, you know, I heard about that. I heard about that. Turn on ESPN at like that is so funny. 1 a.m. Eastern time and you can catch them with baseball uh, as it's live in Korea. And then Hilarious. ESPN does re-airs throughout the day, which is cool. Okay. Um, so my Twitter timeline is like filled with baseball gifs of apparently, you know, epic moments in Korean baseball That's games. It's so all fun. Funny. It's great. Uh, wow. And I just, I'm so happy for the Korean baseball players who get a big fan base in America yeah, that they never great. thought they would have. Yeah. Because all these fans like myself. I'm so like glad myself, that ESPN let them do that. Yeah. Well, no, it's not ESPN letting them. In fact, ESP, airing it? ESPN was almost, um, they were almost, they were kind of the villain in this situation because they, oh. they had so much bargaining power that they went to the Korean baseball organization first and said, hey, we would love to have the rights to air your games. Or nothing. <laughs> oh, brother. Oh, that's annoying. <laughs> and so wow. um, KBO uh, rightly pushed back on that and, and they, they reached a deal. So I'm glad they did. Oh, good, good. Uh, but yeah. anyway, so Sally, what movie did we watch recently that we definitely need to mention here? Okay, so Terrence Malick. We have both, all three of us, have watched a movie recently by Terrence Malick. We watched The Tree of Life. Shout out to Chandler and Lara Ride, previous yes. guests on Vernacular. Your who, birthday present. Who recommended this to us. I believe... I don't want to put words in her mouth, although I will. I believe her words were. <laughs> I think we can scroll back on the text. Laura's Quote. words were the greatest film ever made. <laughs> Very high that praise. like Laura. So I was going into this just expecting to be blown away. And soon we will have them on the show to have a deep dive. We will. But in the meantime, we have to say that that was, I mean, it's an incredible watch. It's half of it is like National Geographic. We're, we're like, what is it called on? Uh. What is the other? It's like the Carl Sagan Cosmos thing. Yeah, yeah. It's like you're watching some sort of 
documentary on space and yeah. to, in, in the movie, the creation of the world. Yeah. So I think, I mean, so let's just back up real quick. The movie is very different from any movie I've ever seen, which I think is probably one of the reasons why Lara is saying that, because yeah. it's very hard to make a distinctive movie now. Yeah, it's, uh, it, is, was, it is. This was made in 2011. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's unlike anything I've ever seen. Only one character has a name. Only one character has a name. Very, very, very little dialogue throughout. Period. Uh, even just the cinematography. I mean, the the way the shots are done. Uh, very lots of, slow. Lots of close-ups. Yeah, lots close of music. on people. I mean, just then... classical music playing pretty much the entire movie, except for some excerpts with sacred the music, really. original score. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's that too. Yeah, there's both. Um, and uh, and yeah, so the scene, though, that you were talking about, Sally, that that sort of trip through the cosmos, it's basically a visual and audio while the lacrimosa is praying is playing of course as, as and we love the lacrimosa it's a uh <laughs> it's a visual depict de- visual and um sonic depiction of creation and it is probably i will side with lara on this it is probably one of the most visually and auditorily arresting things that i've ever experienced and that, and then I'm speaking, having watched it on our little, because we don't have a big TV, it, it, right. big TV. It's, uh, I mean, I'm grateful for it. It's, it's wonderful. We, we, uh, we like even it, on a but smaller, it's like 30 inches, right? Yeah. I cannot imagine what this would have been like in IMAX or even just a regular movie theater. I mean, I found it kind of like unnerving. So if it was bigger, I would have just been really disturbed by the whole thing. Just like the colors and the, what you were, you're just like, not sure what you're watching. And I don't know, maybe I have some sort of sensitivity to those kinds of images, but it was really weird. It wasn't just like you're watching, I don't know, it wasn't clear what you were watching. There were just like bubbles and yeah. gelatinous lava. And I don't know, I don't know. It was, it was very unclear. I appreciated the, 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 when we moved back to the people, that was better. I did not appreciate the dinosaurs. I thought that yeah, was- Yeah, that was weird. That was kind of stupid. Yeah, but, that was weird. But uh, in general, I liked it a lot. And um, then the storyline is basically, you've got three boys- at the beginning of the story, one of them, we find out, has died We find out early somehow. on dies, right? And, and then the whole movie is basically a flashback. Right. A flashback in the life in the life of the, the young boy and his relationship with his mother, who represents grace, and the relationship with the father, who represents nature. And, yeah, how he just kind of copes with those different dynamics. Yeah, I mean, this is... In the 1950s. Yeah, this is a conversation for another time if we're going to really dive sure. deep. And I yeah. guess we'll have, we'll have a conversation about the movie specifically with Laura and Chandler. But, uh, you know, I think we, we were talking about that creation scene. And I think your comment, Sally, was like, how does someone come up with this stuff? And how do you see that in your mind? Yeah. And my, my serious, but like sarcastic sounding or, or, um, tongue in cheek sounding response was acid. And I say that because like, you know, you've read the Steve Jobs biography by Walter Isaacson. Yeah, yeah. I, have you read that Elena? No, but if we're talking about LSD, then. <laughs> then you have experience with this? You have personal experience? No, I haven't. Where is this going? Like yeah, I mean, wow. This... Confessions. No, confessions. I just, it makes me think of uh, the TV show Fringe where they talk about LSD and tripping on that. And um, anyways, I won't go into that, but continue. Yeah, I mean, and, and this is beyond the scope of this episode as well. Uh, there is something I think about, um, about uh, hallucinogenic drugs that uh i will not even say helps people necessarily access the truth but i think it helps them um it sort of expands the horizons to recognize the possibility of something being further out there and that's what what, that's what steve jobs basically said about lsd 
Uh, and I, I'm not accusing Terrence Malick of having done this, I, but I will say that the creative, um, the creative fingerprints that I saw in this movie bear the hallmark of someone who's experimented with LSD. And I think the I was reading T- Terrence Malick's bio in the timeline lines up like he was a philosophy student in the 60s and 70s. He goes to Oxford as a Rhodes uh, Scholar. You know, dropped out of Oxford because he was kind of a rebel philosophy student. Like, it all lines up perfectly with with my theory here about the origins of Terrence Malick's idea, which, which like, none of that is to to dismiss it or to lessen it. I mean, again, I think that, you know, those... There could be one influence among many. Sure, but I also think that those experiences can actually, like, help someone... Benefit, yeah. You know, uh, find the truth. I'm not saying that, like, you know, LSD opens you to portals of reality. Uh, but what I'm saying is, you know, LSD tends to, it's, it, it mirrors uh, or sort of synthesizes mystical experiences as we talk about them in religious life um, to such a degree that I think people are more awakened to the possibility of reality being broader and more grand than what our senses show us. I like that. I wonder, so Elena, what is, uh, what, how does that relate to the hidden life? I think we is lost there... Elena briefly. Oh, Elena, can you hear us? No, I- uh, no, I'm still here. Okay. Um, is there right. any anything uh, similar between what no our experience and yours? There is no hint of LSD in A Hidden Life. Okay. I'll just say that. <laughs> and this is set no. in the 19th. 19- so this is, yeah, this is World War II Austria. Okay. And um, a young farmer is uh, conscripted by uh, the Germans after the Anschluss, which is when they annexed Austria. Um and he lives in a, a beautiful, rural, mountainous uh, farming village, you know, far away from um, far away from Berlin and the politics. And um, I mean, I'm, it seems that there's, uh, you know, they're, they're far from the death camps and all these things. So a, a lot of that is very foreign to them. But he's, he has this intuition in himself that there's something really wrong about the Germans. Um, it was interesting to watch this with my grandfather, our grandfather, minus Sally's, uh, who, you know, he reads anything he can get his hands on regarding World War Two. And so um, but we're watching this movie and it shows a lot of pastoral scenes. And and this man who uh, resists conscription into the German military because he just believes in his heart that this is there's something not right about this war. Um, he doesn't have any and, proof. It's not like he can he's seen concentration camps or something. It, Right. He just knows that it's not, he knows that it's wrong. Um, but no, he hasn't, he doesn't have exposure to concentration camps or anything like that. Um, and he hasn't really spent time on the front lines either. But, um, but after there's a, you know, there are scenes where he's talking with his priest. Um, he's a, which I also was surprised about. I didn't know there were so many, um, Catholics in, in Germany and Austria, but, um, but yeah, so after conversations with his priest and discussions about, um, about uh you know when it's right to do these things and and he knows that he's putting his family at risk um he ends up going to prison of course um but so as the terence malick component of it means that you have these gorgeous pastoral scenes of his wife who's still back at home with their daughters taking care of the farm um and it's contrasted with these harsh realities of of him in prison um and another thing that I felt was uh, very uniquely uh, Malik was, um, you know, you, you mentioned that in uh, Tree of Life, um, they uh, there aren't very many words. Um, 
And there were there were scenes in A Hidden Life where uh, he's before a, a tribunal or a court, and um, and at some points, you know, people are speaking English, uh, and you know, you're imagining that it's German. At other times, they speak German and they provide English subtitles. But there were some scenes where they spoke German and didn't provide any subtitles at all, mm. which felt like it was. Um, an expression of how you really don't need to know the words in order to understand the emotion and the, the reality of what's going on in those scenes. Um, and that just felt like a kind of a uniquely Malik thing as far as we're, you know, talking about how he, he uses or doesn't use words. Um, was there a lot of close-ups on uh, people's faces? Because that was in the tree oh, of life. Yes. It was just like Brad Pitt emoting. And yes, and so many different <laughs> angles. Yeah. Like, you know, you've got <laughs> Jessica, like, Jessica Chastain even more so. It was just constantly yeah. looking at her and trying to understand what was going through her mind. Well, and there's also a lot of um, like looking up at a person, uh, especially of, uh, of the main character, Franz. Um, oh, Franz uh, Jägerstatter. Um, you know, he's in the field and the camera angle is looking up at him. Mm, interesting. Um, I don't know if that was supposed to represent that he is kind of on the moral high ground or something like that, but hmm. you know, they're, they're just very, yeah, very unusual camera angles. Um, always uh, drawing you into the, the intimacy of the character's emotion. That's awesome. I want to see it. Yeah. Sounds really good. Well, that's yeah, you our, guys would love it. That covers down on our watch stuff and just in our parting minutes here, what do we have for listen recommendations? Elena, let's start with you. Well, uh, also in the spirit of Terrence Malick, probably I have been all about uh, instrumental and uh, music in other languages lately. I feel like with all the chaos of, uh, you know, pandemic talk and the constant news cycle and um, and all the, the work that keeps coming in in response to all of this, um, the thing that I've needed has just been... Um, instrumental um uh sacred music but one song in particular i discovered this a while ago and sent it to you but it's um it's an aramaic musical rendition of uh the lord's prayer um by a choir in uh in a church in georgia uh performed in front of the pope and it is just um i, I mean the the sound of of choral music sung in a cathedral is unbelievable um but uh so that's that's one of the things that i've been listening to i have a, a couple of other things similar to that but that's pretty representative of what's been on my uh, itunes a lot lately very nice all right sally yeah i haven't been listening to much uplift or i mean i guess pie brow music mostly just kid music steve green <laughs> but in terms of podcasts i've kind of been well if i guess i've cut back on my podcast listening. And the, when I do find the time to listen, I usually stick to spiritual or religious topics with my podcast these days. And along those lines, I've already recommended God's planning. I'll recommend it again. Blessed is she. Um, and yeah. And then Credo Catholic can't go wrong with any of those podcasts. Great recommendations. I, uh, don't really have anything to add. Uh, no, I actually have one to add. <laughs> it's, it's a little bit, um, it's a little bit different. I just stumbled upon this. Uh, so th there's a guy named Eric Weinstein, or it might, might be Eric Weinstein, but I think it's Weinstein. Uh, he is a venture capitalist, 
and a technologist, I think a physicist by training, really interesting guy. He has like a techno libertarian bent, as far as I can tell with his politics. Interesting. Yeah, it really, really interesting. He's managing director at Teal Capital, as in Peter Teal, you know, um, futurist, uh, very interesting guy himself. Um, original, one of the original investors in PayPal. As in that TV show that you used to watch, Silicon Valley? Was he in that too? No, but there was a figure like him in okay. it. Yeah, okay. Peter okay. Gregory was was okay. built after Peter Thiel. Exactly, okay. yeah. So Eric Weinstein is a managing director at Thiel Capital. Very interesting, deep thinker. Uh, I would just say like an unorthodox thinker, but he has this podcast called The Portal. And if you go to The Portal, there are these long form conversations anywhere between an hour and a half and two and a half hours with people. Uh, and they're they're pretty interesting people. So for example... Uh, at the end of April, he interviewed J.D. Vance. In mid-April, uh, Ross Douthit. Uh, going back through James O'Keefe, uh, Ben Greenfield, Sir Roger Penrose. Uh, very interesting. Tyler Cowen. Very interesting uh, people. Vit- Vitalik Buterin, uh, who is the founder of Ethereum Crypto. Oh, wow. Sam Harris, the atheist. Quite a variety. Yeah, it really is. Andrew Yang, the one-time presidential candidate. That's so, cool. um, yeah, so the portal by Eric Weinstein, <laughs> just an interesting, interesting way to be exposed to, uh, to new ideas and unorthodox thinking. Cool. Very interesting. It's almost like an LSD trip all, all on its right. own. Yeah, <laughs> perhaps yeah, maybe, uh, maybe Mr. Weinstein's, uh, had his fair share. I don't know. All right. Well, that's it for our read, watch, listen. If you are reading, watching, or listening to something that you think we should know about, send us a note, Zach and Sally at vernacularpodcast.com. We'll be back in a couple weeks with more stuff. Maybe it'll be the Tree of Life conversation, maybe something else. But uh, who knows? It'll just be a surprise. Until next time, I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Have a great week.